Well, it's tremendous. I hope you are excited. Uh, I hope if you're newer to church, you'll learn that there is things to be excited, predominantly about Jesus we're excited about, but also what he's doing within us. Now, a couple of times a year, really three times a year, at the beginning of each term, what we do is have a Sunday, have a week, where across all our different gatherings and congregations and meetings, we have a think about and a sense of where God is taking us, the direction he's moving us in. We take seriously the, the Proverbs 29:18, where it says, without a vision, the people perish, but the blessed one is the one who follows the Lord's instruction. Uh, So we say, actually, we want to be a living church, not a perishing church, not a dying church, a living and an alive church. So we need to know what God's vision is for us. And this morning, if you've been around church for any length of time, you'll know that it's not a new vision. I'm not going to talk to you about anything that you have not heard before. We've got to know it pretty well. We have values which tell us what we aspire to be as a church. We aspire to be the kind of place where everybody is loved, where everyone finds a family, a place to belong, a place where they're accepted and welcomed, that even if we cannot endorse everything that is true about someone, we are going to battle and fight to embrace them, whatever is true about them. That here will be a safe place in any number of our congregations. We take Jesus seriously. You know what Jesus says? This is challenging, isn't it? Jesus says, love your neighbor, the one you like, the one who's a friend, and love your enemy, doesn't he? That's quite a spectrum, isn't it? And pretty much everyone fits on that spectrum. So that's our first value, our first aspiration, destination, and who we want to be is a place where everyone feels loved and belongs and part of this place. Secondly is to be courageous in mission. It is great good news, isn't it? Can you think of some good news you've heard recently? Like seriously, just think for a moment, good news that made you smile, made you laugh, made you happy. Good news that until you heard it, had your edge of your seat wondering what was going on. Maybe it's the good news of that grainy little photo that comes from the ultra scan. The baby is real. The baby is coming. You hashtag it all over the world. Maybe it's the good news that that promotion you've spent the last decade working towards, getting qualified for, building your experience for, you've got that promotion. The dream job is yours. You're thrilled. That kind of news isn't just good, is it? It's momentous. It's life-changing. We've had that ultra-scan scan four times now. I can tell you at each one of those moments, my life changed. It wasn't just good news. It was momentous news. I got old and bald and wrinkly, as my boys like to tell me. It's, it's momentous, life-changing news. Well, the good news of Jesus is like that, and therefore we're courageous in the mission to get it to people who don't yet know it. To introduce them to Jesus, our best friend, John 15, 15, Jesus says, I am your friend. We want people to know that and hear that and understand that. Thirdly, loving people, courageous in mission. Thirdly, we aspire to be a place that is saturated in the Bible, that takes the fact God is a speaking God. Don't you just pause for a moment sometimes and think, isn't that incredible? That the God who created the universe, the God decided to hung hung the stars exactly where he put them with his fingertip crafted the Himalayas, that God chooses to speak to you regularly and repeatedly and consistently when the Bible is taught. Isn't that amazing? The illustration I use with the young people and, and, and the kids uh, is the difference between a sniper and a toddler. Between a sniper and a toddler. A sniper is someone who is present, but silent and unheard, aren't they? A toddler is someone who is present, and you know it all the time. Yeah? 
Well, God is a toddler if it's not too flippant. He literally leaps out like a toddler does when they're playing hide and seek. They cannot contain it any longer. They're so desperate to be found, a toddler leaps out and says, here I am, here I am, find me, here I am. Well, amazingly, God has done that through Jesus and the Bible's witness to him. He's a speaking God. And so our third great aspiration, desire, is that we are a place that is saturated in the Bible. The Bible is taught seriously, and we do what it says, even when we don't want to. Even when the personal cost is great, or even when the conflict with culture is harsh, we know that God is too wise to have made a mistake, too loving to wish us harm, and too powerful not to achieve his purposes, and so we trust God and do what he says as we hear it taught in the Bible. And then fourth and finally, our great aspiration of who we are, loving people, courageous in mission, Bible-saturated. Fourthly is that we're dependent on God's spirit. How on earth are we going to do any of these things? My goodness, I struggle to love my neighbor, let alone love my enemy. I don't know about you. I find that really, really hard. Stoke fans, I really struggle to love you. <laughs> right? And being courageous and, and brave and gutsy and audacious and stepping into situations where I know that I might fail. Now, let's redefine fail just in the side. What does fail stand for? F-A-I-L. First attempt in learning. Let's get that clear in our minds. First attempt in learning. But the reality is that when you're being courageous, there will be moments when it feels like you have failed. How on earth will we be that courageous and step into the unknown? with our friends, as a church, to Gimdi. Well, only if we're filled by God's Spirit will we be that kind of courageous. How will God's Word do God's work, as the Bible is taught? Only by God's Spirit. We are desperately open, ready, eager, and to receive all that God has for us in this wonderful gift of his Spirit. That's who we aspire to be. And we articulate that in, in terms of a couple of numbers. We count people because people count. You know, there's a whole book of the Bible called Numbers. God seems to be a fan of accounting. And so we follow him. A couple of numbers. The first is 20 by 20. Have you heard us use that one before? 20 congregations by 2020. The Beacon Church at the moment is seven. Uh, about four years ago, we were three. The curve needs to sharpen a little bit, doesn't it? But we're pursuing 20 by 20. By December 31st, 2020, that there'll be 20 congregations that are part of our church, part of Beacon Church. As I said, at the moment, we're seven, plus a congregation in Gimdi, eight, counts it slightly differently, across four buildings. We're about to get a fifth building over the next six months. That's where we are at the moment. We're pursuing Jesus for 20 by 20. A second number we use is 100. 100 Baptist Union churches, that's the wider grouping nationally we belong to. 100 of those churches, through engagement with us, to see twice the number of baptisms in the next 12 months as the five years previously. That's something called the Firestarter Network. That's got a lot of traction. Just recently, we've got five conferences we're hosting across the country, Reading, Sheffield, Maidstone, Stafford, and London, over the next uh, run through to Christmas, engaging with churches eager to grow and see themselves reawakened to what God is doing in their lives. And we want God to use us to be part of that equation, a hundred of them, a hundred of them. And then lastly, three overseas partnerships where we get to serve, give, sacrifice, and love the least those who are viewed as least in the world, most vulnerable. Nepal is our first of the three, with 84 children now sponsored in Nepal, one orphanage built in Kathmandu, one church and medical centre and boarding house built in Gimdi, first believers coming to life in Gimdi itself, and 84 children, 84 children whose lives were desperate, who were orphaned or social orphaned, sponsored, so they have a future. That's who we are as a church.
okay? Who we are and our values, love, courage, Bible, spirit, where we're going, 20, 103. That's what we're about. And there is some great momentum, without doubt. God is doing some fantastic things in Nepal. He's doing some amazing things through the fire starters. He's growing our churches. We've got more baptisms coming up in September and I think in November in the Sunday morning congregations that we have here. God is doing some tremendous, tremendous things. We've just launched an advert for another member of staff to join us to lead the Burley Fields uh, new development and plant a brand new church from scratch there. Loads of momentum. But is there a risk we could relax? That's my question this morning. Is there a risk that as a church we could drop our eyes or, or lose concentration or a little bit or our enthusiasm and our passion for what God is doing is to slightly wane? That's the challenge with middle stuff, isn't it? Just think for a moment. Have you ever run a marathon? A few, I know a few of us have. I know we celebrate uh, people who do double marathons like uh, uh, Dee and Danielle, crazy and wild as they are back in June. I know Steve Cranston is off doing the Three Peaks Challenge this weekend, isn't he? Yeah. But the struggle when you're running a marathon is not the beginning, when you're full of energy and excitement, and it's not the end, where you can see the finish line and the little medal you're going to receive is, is going to be yours in the next few miles. It's the middle that's hard work. Just got to keep running, just got to keep running, just got I mean, 26 miles, just get in the car, people. Right, just got to keep running. Yeah. Uh. Or it's, it's the middle of life. This is what people tell me. I'm in denial that I turned 40 last year. Absolutely in denial. I, I, I feel 16, and yet somehow the calendar says I'm 40. How does that happen? I don't really understand. But apparently the middle of life is when you slow up. Is that right? I don't, shouldn't look at anyone now, should I? Yeah? And I don't know how to... I spoke to a friend the other day, and they said, no, no, you're not in midlife till you're about 55. I'm like, mate, you're not living to 110. Your maths is just not right there. That's not the middle of your life. But they say, don't they, in midlife, you start to slow up. You've had the first flush of energy. Now you can just take your foot off the accelerator, coast along a little bit, until finally the real aches and pains start to come up, and, and death rears its ugly head, and you think, I better do all those things I never did, and you pick up pace again. Yeah? I think that's what Joshua did in the Bible at 80 years old. He says, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. I think he'd coasted for a little bit and had a panic. I better get things done, right? But the middle of life is supposedly slow. See, I wonder if there is a little bit of a risk that because it's become hard work, because we've had, we have had some disappointments and frustrations, because we're very familiar with it, what looked so beautiful back in 2016, or when we started to date it and then married it, and man, was that vision stunning when we first met her, actually now, at the end of 2018, just looks a little bit like hard work and a little bit diff difficult. And so the question that's been in my mind as we've come into this, and I've been really helped talking to Chrissy and Kevin on Wednesday and talking to Chris Knight a week or so ago, is are we still committed to this? Or to phrase it another way, is there a reason big enough to sacrifice and give and work and believe that God will do this? to continue fighting hard for it. God has done some amazing and remarkable things over the last five or six years and over the last 70 years prior to that since the church began its life in 1948. But is there a big enough reason to keep going? Is there something of enough gravitas and beauty and value and worth that we'll keep giving, keep sacrificing, keep working, keep praying and keep believing? 
And I've genuinely had to think about it and ponder it and wonder it. And my answer is a resounding yes. And actually, my answer is nothing new. Nothing new at all. The answer resides in the fact that Jesus is real and Jesus is king, that heaven is beautiful, stunning and wonderful, that hell is horrid and real and terrifying, that there is a great good news message that actually transforms people's lives when people's Holy Spirit comes in, that actually people who are addicted manage to battle and fight those things, that actually marriages that were lost are refound, that actually lives where people were far from anything good and decent become wonderful contributing and giving places where there is joy available for all who trust in Jesus. There is nothing new under the sun once Jesus came into this world. It is all there in him. And so what I want to do is to take us back to Acts chapter 14. So would you please find it in your Bible? I'd be absolutely delighted. Or pull it up on your phone. Whatever gadget is your favourite way of seeing how God speaks. Acts chapter 14. It's on page 1109, 1109. Acts chapter 14. And let me rehearse what some of us would have heard before. Unashamedly, let me rehearse it again, because there is nothing new under the sun. Jesus is all there is. It is all about Jesus. He has come, he has lived, he has died, he has risen again, and he rules now for all eternity until he returns in all of his splendor and finery. It is all about Jesus. The first reason that is big enough and significant enough and momentous enough for us to give our lives to this over and above everything else, in this church or another church you go to, to give your lives to this is we need to reach people, new people, with the great good news of Jesus. Look at sentence 21, would you please? It says, they preached the gospel in that city and they won a large number of disciples. They preached the gospel in that city And they won a large number of disciples. They go to a brand new place they have never been before. And when they arrive amongst this people who have never heard Jesus, what do they do is they preach him and preach in such a way they long for people to be won, to be persuaded, to be committed, to be owned by Jesus. That's the first reason why this is worth battling and fighting for, giving our all to whatever that might mean for us as part of this church, is because actually there are people out there who need to be reached with this wonderful good news. They need to be told about who Jesus is, that we proclaim Jesus from his beginning to his end, that we tell people that Jesus is the one that with the Trinity was part of the Trinity before time began. He is the one who created and made you. And he loves you so much that he left that celestial palace where he owned everything and came into the very world that he had created. This is the Jesus we're telling people about. To become a tiny squalling baby in the squalor of a borrowed and dirty stable, born illegitimately to a teenage 14-year-old girl who, when she went back to her hometown, Bethlehem, and knocked on the doors of her relatives, her uncles and aunts were the innkeepers who said, no room for you, my girl, in the state you are in, that Jesus chose that because he wanted to win us to himself. That then the creator of all things, the one who made genius and creativity and wealth and money, chose as his career a carpenter. Now that's not a fine furniture carpenter as we think about it in a nice dry little workshop getting incredible amounts of money for his artistry. That is a construction worker, a house builder, a labourer is what Jesus chose to be. His forearms were massive, his hands were callous, his back was probably broken By the time he was 30 years old, he worked for a living, friends. 
that he taught in a way that had such profound impact, impact, it's still used to write constitutions for countries. It's required reading in the EU charter when countries come up with their constitutions, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's how profound and lasting his teaching is over 2,000 years. He did supernatural things to prove his true identity as God in human form. And then most remarkably of all, he died on that cross. That's what we proclaim, isn't it? Jesus crucified. Jesus, the God who was crucified. Crucifixion, friends, is so painful and horrific that we invented a new word to describe that pain, excruciating, from the cross. The one who made everything, the one who is pure and innocent and beautiful in every way, hung on a cross in our place for our sin, a substitution that satisfied God's rightful wrath at us. So we did not have to hung there. We did not have to be there. That is what Jesus did for us. Is that not remarkable? He said, I will go where you belong so you, not, you do not have to be there. So that when God looks on me, he sees you, is what Jesus said, and pours out all of his rightful justice on our sin rebellion onto Jesus It is fully satisfied. There is nothing left of God's wrath to give. So we are free and forgiven. And then three days after, he's placed in a borrowed grave. Joseph, a rich friend, placed him in a borrowed grave. Three days later, that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday by dawn, he's alive again. He's risen in all power, Satan's sin and death defeated. All of it dealt with. The wrath of God dealt with it. All of it dealt with. A new dawn breaks for everyone who chooses to trust in him. All of that gone as Jesus died on the cross. All of the benefits of Jesus handed to us as he rises again. Purity, beauty, forgiveness, freedom, power. Forty days later, 40 evidence-filled days later. Why 40 days? Why only 40 days? Why only six weeks was Jesus risen on earth? Because if you don't believe after six weeks of evidence, you won't believe after six years or 60 years. There is more than enough evidence. He goes back to his celestial throne, now the conquering king, not just the ruler of heaven, but again the ruler of earth, where he waits patiently for all who will trust him to do that. And then we're told a day comes in our future at some point, we don't know when it is, when he rides back into his world, clearly visible as the creator king he is, and all Philippians 2 will bow their knee and confess with their voice that Jesus Christ is king. The only option is not whether you say he is king and bow before him as king. That is not an option for any human being. The only option is whether we do it voluntarily with joy today or we do it through violent force and submission when he returns. That's the only choice. This reason is big enough because eternity is a very, very long time. So long that we're told that 80 odd years on this earth is like a desert flower, 24 hours in existence. It comes and goes. That's the analogy in the Bible. We're like a wisp. We're like a smoke wisp. One puff and it's gone. That's what 80 years is like. Now, trust me, it doesn't feel like it at 40. Eternity is a very long time and Jesus is real and heaven is beautiful and hell is horrid. So we reach people and we reach new people. They went to that city. Do you see? They didn't go back to where they had been at this point. They go to a new place, a new city, and there they talk about Jesus. They explain his death and they see lives transformed. They see the blind able to see. They see the dead brought back to life. They see the lost found. They see those who are far brought near. It's beautiful, stunning, and amazing. That's who we are as a church. This is who we are as a church. We reach people. Secondly, there's only three. Secondly, we grow disciples. Would you look again at sentence 21? Would you please? 
It shows me you're listening, which you are, I can tell. There's a lot of engagement this morning. Let's look at the second half of sentence 21. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Do you see what they do? Do you see the word returned? You could underline it mentally or physically. You see that word returned? They go to a new place first and preach the gospel to new people. They want to reach people. But then they return to places they've been before and strengthen and encourage. Did you see those words? That what they're interested in, what we're interested in, is not just people saying, I trust Jesus, but people who are saying, I follow Jesus. Not just people who step over the start line, but people who continue running the race, who grow as disciples. We want to be a church where people genuinely are saying, I do not want to be what I was like yesterday. I want to become all I can be tomorrow. And therefore, today, I'll invest in my discipleship. Do you see the equation? It's very simple. I don't want, I don't want to be what I was like yesterday. I want to become like this tomorrow. So today, I have to invest in it. I have to grow as a follower of Jesus. I need help to be strengthened and encouraged and assisted, whether that's through uh, preaching at a main gathering or service, whether particularly through our small groups and getting to know people, whether through training courses, reading books. Why do you think we opened a bookshop? My goodness, it's not to make money. I can assure you of that. There's no money in paper. Not at all. But there is godliness in books. There is godliness in books. We don't just want to win converts. We want to grow disciples. Jesus' great description of a disciple is in Mark chapter 12. He's asked the question, what does it mean truly to honor God? What does it mean to truly follow him? Mark chapter 12, 30 to 31, Jesus says it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To be growing in your ability to love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of it, you are. Give it all. He doesn't say 90% of your mind and 62% of your strength. It's not like university. When I was at university, you just needed to get 40% to pass. I always thought that was pretty, yeah, I know less than half of the stuff I need to know, but I'm qualified. How does that work? I'm so glad doctors aren't trained like that. Yeah, you you can operate because you know 40% of where the organs are. Yeah, you just hope they know where the heart is. Oh, I, got, I was wrong on the heart. If you needed a liver transplant, I could help you. But a cardiac issue, it's just pot luck, mate. You wouldn't want that, would you? Jesus says it's everything. All that we are, loving God, and that flows out into loving other people. The, the vertical is proven and evidenced by the horizontal. The relationship we have with God is shown by the relationship we have with people. How do we know if we're growing in following Jesus, loving him? Because we'll see it in how we're growing in loving others. No change in how you love others? I query if you're loving Jesus. They're intrinsically tied together, those two axes, the vertical and the horizontal. And that's worth giving to. That's a big enough reason, isn't it? I love my kids, like all of us who have the privilege of having children. We love them, but you know we're not raising children. You know that, don't you? We're not raising children. We're raising disciples. That's what parenting is. It's raising disciples. It's the most intense furnace of discipleship there is. We're not raising children. We're raising disciples. It's worth giving everything to, isn't it? And third and finally, here in Acts, why is it worth it? 
this wonderful, beautiful aspiration we have in our identity to love, courage, Bible, and spirit, and in our ambition, 20 by 20, 100 other churches, three overseas partners, identity, ambition. Why is it worth it? Third and finally, because we want to catalyze churches. Have a look at sentence 23. It says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. That's the establishment of a church. You reach new people, you begin to disciple them, and then you organize them into a church which caters for that and catalyzes further growth. It's a church. With trusted, godly leadership that is carefully appointed and supported by prayer and fasting, who then point that church in the direction that God has in mind for it. And friends, that is legacy, isn't it? That is enormous legacy. Of all the different churches we've been able to catalyze, whether they're congregations of Beacon Church, whether they're other churches further afield that we've been able to work with, what, one of the ones that most inspires me is the moments that God has allowed us to catalyze a church in a place that never, ever, ever has had a church before. Is that not remarkable? That we might be used by God, little old us in Stafford. Now, I love Stafford, so no offence to Stafford, but it is Stafford. It's not New York, is it? Or London, or Hong Kong, or Shanghai, or Taipei, or Sao Paulo, or Lusaka. It's Stafford. But that doesn't matter, does it? Because it's not about, is it Stafford? It's about who God is, isn't it? And I look at our church And our little congregations, we keep them to 100 so we can carry on loving people. So there's never a massive room of 500 people. And I look and I go, really us? But it's not about if there's 50 or 100 or 5,000, in fact, is it? It's about who God is. It's about who God is. And isn't it remarkable that he uses what looks so weak, Stafford, not New York. And he uses what looks so weak, Beacon Church, not Holy Trinity Brompton. To prove that it is about him, that he is the one doing it. So why Psalm 115 verse 1? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That's why he does it. God, I hope we never become strong. Oh my goodness, I hope we sail against the wind when it comes to being strong. I hope our finances as a church are never certain. I hope our leadership structures as a church are never certain. Because if we become strong, how will God use us? Because he uses the weak. The weak. So that he is glorified and shown as magnificent. And so he's used us. We're on the cusp of a third, third place that will have a church for the first time ever, ever, ever in its history. Ever. Places that that church in God's economy will flourish for centuries. And God used us to do it. Is that not incredible? Gimdi, no followers of Jesus. A 16-year-old boy called Nazareth, who had to leave the village because of family disgrace, hikes himself to Kathmandu, is homeless, is taken in by a pastor, finds Jesus... 25 years later, returns to his home village where they appoint him the mayor. How is God not in that? And now for the first time there's a church. There's 50, 60 children 
sponsored out of poverty. And Davindra and his family are the first believers in Jesus. Is that not incredible that God would use us to do that? A church built in Gimdi. Or Marsden Grange. 12, 13,000 people live on Marsden Grange. No church in the middle of the community. God would use us, and especially the remarkable work of Wendy and Kevin, to initiate the beginnings of a congregation and church there where there's never been a church. How long will that housing estate be there? Now there's debate. It's new houses. They might blow over in the next wind. I don't know. Yeah? But probably 50 years, 100 years. 100 years! That's legacy, isn't it? That's legacy. That's a life worth living. The lives transformed through that. And now Burleyfields, the custom of Burleyfields, exactly the same project, a church where there has never been a church. Friends, this is who we are. This is who we are. This is who God is calling us to be. We're middle of the way through. We might be tired. We might be hungry. We might be frustrated. We might be confused. We might be disappointed. But the reasons are infinitely big enough to keep us going and to keep us running. We will not be left wondering what God might have done if only we had trusted more and tried harder. We know that to reach people who have never been reached, we need to do things that have never been done. This is who we are. We know we will fail. We know that God will do it. We know he will be glorified and we will have the deepest satisfaction and joy that when we leave this church because God calls us elsewhere, when we send you out to go to Malawi to plant a church for the very first time, when some of our children go to the dark nations and are martyred for their faith and we weep together and mourn with parents who mourn because Jesus used us to send one of his children into that environment, we will not be left wondering what God might have done if only we had trusted more and tried harder. This is who we are. This is who we are. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you have not promised any of this. Your promises are in the Bible. And yet you have called us to pursue it, to give it our all, to trust you with the results. We acknowledge that for significant aspects of what we're praying for and talking about, we have no idea how you're going to do it. We acknowledge that and yet we trust you. We long that you would be honoured and glorified and shown in all of your beauty and all of your glory and all of your honour. We long that we would pray and mean the John 3.30 prayer that we may decrease so Jesus would increase, that we may become small so the full magnitude of Jesus might be clearly and rightly seen. We long the name of Beacon Church would be forgotten very quickly in people's minds, overshadowed by the magnificence of the name of Jesus. This is our heartfelt prayer. This is our heartfelt longing. Help us to love people like you love people. Help us to be courageous, brave and gutsy like you are as you left heaven to come to earth that we would sacrifice our preference and comfort to go to people who don't yet know you. Help us to love your word and to do what it says even when we struggle to understand it. You are wiser than we and we must trust you when your Bible speaks to us. And help us just pour out your spirit, Jesus. Just pour out your spirit, Jesus. Just pour out your spirit. We labour in vain unless you build the house. Pour out your spirit. May there be no hesitation, no heart restraint, no mind resistance to the fullest, freshest and final experience of all your spirit has for us. Because without your work in us through your spirit, we can do nothing that lasts. And what we want is legacy for the name of Jesus.
Let's stand, shall we, friends? And we're going to sing a closing song.